Hello, left fielders. This is the Infielder Spotlight Podcast, powered by Left Field Investors. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Welcome to the Infielder Spotlight episode, where one of our infielders share their story with host Chad Ackerman. Listen in to gain insights from our community on how to create financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Infielder Spotlight. I'm your host, Chad Ackerman, and with us today is infielder Paul Shannon. Paul, welcome to the show. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me, Chad. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Paul, I want to thank you first for all the contributions you've made to Left Field. You've been a great help with a lot of content, being on our forum, doing some blogs for us and everything like that. So I want to take the opportunity to thank you for that as well. I appreciate you saying so. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I really enjoy trying to add value to the group. I get a lot of value out of Left Field Investors Group myself, and I just think it's a great thing what you guys have going on. So thank you. Cool. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully we'll continue to get content from you. So part of this is greasing the palms here. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate you joining. So what we usually do is kind of just jump through to start out with, with what your journey has been, how you worked your way over to the passive income world what you did prior to, if you could, don't mind just running through what that story has been like for yourself. Yeah, sure. I'm originally from the East Coast. I live out in Indianapolis, Indiana. We've been here about eight years now. I've got three children, nine, seven, and three. My wife, uh, we've married about 15 years and we were a dual income household. So we both had careers that we've thankfully both been able to maintain as we've kind of matured through them and taken promotions of different opportunities. I have a medical device capital equipment sales background. So I did that for the last decade of my W-2 career. And I love real estate. I'm obsessed with it, actually. It's a passion of mine. I like everything about it. I'm anxious to learn about things that I don't already know about uh, or haven't uh, invested in. And for me, it was a way to kind of segue into a different career. So I'm an active investor and I've been doing single family flips, doing the Burr strategy, essentially buying properties that are distressed, fixing them up, refinancing them. I've been taking that capital and reinvesting it and trying to create philosophy of money. I've done that both in single family homes, duplexes, quads, as well as mid-sized multifamily. So call it 40, 50 unit properties. And then I found passive investing. And that was well before I got into multifamily actively. I've been investing passively since 2018, I believe it is. And I just really love the model. And I like investing with other operators in areas that I otherwise would have a hard time doing so actively. And so I think eventually I'll transition more over to the passive side, 100%. Right now, it's probably 40 or 50% of my real estate holdings are limited partner positions. So I very much enjoy it. And yeah, that's kind of my background. I've made a career out of it, uh, real estate. And so far, everything has worked out. I'm busy enough that I can keep going with it. All the markets are kind of changing quickly right now. It's been a lot of fun and it's been rewarding. So Yeah, that sounds like quite the background too. You've kind of covered the spectrum of real estate investing. You've chased all the shiny objects, it sounds like, basically. (laughs) that's right. In the passive side, what asset classes are you leaning towards more often than not these days? If you've been playing with it for a few years now, I'm just curious what you find beneficial from an asset class standpoint. Sure. I'm mostly invested in multifamily because it's what I know and it's what I evaluate and I look at pretty much daily at this point. So predominantly invested in multifamily. I do have an industrial offering in my portfolio. 
I have an ATM fund. I really like that for steady cash flow. It's predictable. And then I recently got into a self-storage opportunity as well. So I have a little bit of other types of assets. And I think what's great about that is that I'm not a self-storage expert, for example. So it allows me to diversify into other asset classes within real estate. I can do it in markets that offer me geographical diversification. So if I want to invest in Atlanta or Dallas and take advantage of some of the demographic kind of trends and migration that's happening to those markets and favorable job growth that they've had in those areas, I can do that without having to go down there and build out a team and try to do it actively. And then I can diversify away from myself as a sponsor. Although I've been successful in what I've been doing over the last few years, there is still risk within yourself. You only know what you know. You don't know what you don't. So I like to team up with people that have a lot more experience than I do that have weathered storms through different economic downturns and can kind of offer me some of the diversification away from myself as an operator. So love passive investing. That's fair. Definitely. As you've progressed through all of this and you've diversified that portfolio and leaned into new areas and so forth, what have been some of the resources that you have found helpful to get educated, get comfortable to make those decisions to get investing in areas that you're new to and that kind of thing? What's been helpful along the way for you? Like a lot of your members in your group, I think you, know, you start with trying to find the forest of the trees and it starts with just education. So reading a lot of books. I think my favorite book that I ever read was Brian Burke's The Hands-Off Investor. I'm sure most of your community knows about Brian Burke and his book. And that was really what kicked me off into passive investing, really understanding the syndication model. I got excited about investing passively in the mailbox money and the preferred returns and just getting that distribution podcasts, listening to a lot of podcasts. The Left Wheelers podcast is a good one, but also more active investing podcasts, trying to keep up with what's going on with debt markets and macroeconomic trends. And this all affects multifamily. It's not in a silo uh, or real estate in general. Nothing is in a silo in our economy. So just really understanding the economy as a whole and trying to keep up to speed on current events and such. And networking has been huge for me. It's, it holds me accountable to want to keep pursuing this. This is not like other investments where you go onto your brokerage account online and you sit in your office by yourself and you allocate and you get a few index funds and rebalance every now and again. Even though it's called passive real estate investing, it's much more active than other styles of investing. So you really have to know who you are as a person as far as your risk tolerance. You have to know who you're investing with from a sponsor standpoint. So getting to know them and their track records. I've made an effort to go to different conferences and actually meet sponsors, shake their hands, learn what they're doing, which has benefited from the active side of the business. But also it's kind of exposed me to different limited partners opportunities with sponsors that I otherwise might not know about. You see a lot of people online that are marketing really, really well. Are they marketing experts that just happen to sell real estate or are they real estate operators that are going to be fiduciaries of your money and good stewards of your capital. I'd much prefer to do the latter as far as investing with those folks as opposed to just going with the shiny object, as you called it before, as far as the flashy marketing material or the person who knows how to market the best. So meeting in person, networking on Zoom calls, going to local meetups even, and just seeing who's in the space in my own backyard. So all those resources and all those types of events, whether in person or virtual, have been helpful for me to kind of expand on my journey. That's great. Now, I think you said it well by saying it is passive investing, but it's really an active job on your part. We kind of ponder this with our group every now and again. Do you feel like you'll get to a point where you know, like, and trust certain sponsors enough that you do? 
pull back and become more passive with them and just trust them and not do as much due diligence? Or is it just you find it fun and you just like to do it anyway? I don't know if you can consider reading a PPM fun, but it's pretty dry. But I haven't gotten to that point yet where I just trust somebody blindly. I am invested in one multifamily fund that happens to be author of the book I mentioned earlier, because I do have sort of implicit trust in that group to make decisions based around, hey, we have this amount of capital, we need to find assets. I don't know what those assets are. I know the parameters of the fund and I'm okay with that. But no, I think because markets change so often, it's helpful to kind of check that sponsor every now and again when you're ready to make an investment. And you have to remember, these are good people, right? But this is their job. The money they make to put food on the table through sometimes through acquisition fees, through asset management fees. So the more they have under management, the better off they do. And they want to diversify portfolios. So in certain cases, they may take outsized risks. In certain cases, they may take a defensive posture on a specific asset or a specific deal. I'd rather be invested in those defensive deals than the ones that they're shooting for the moon on. Their overall track record may not be marred too badly if they come out on the aggressive side or the aggressive deal and it doesn't end up the way exactly they want it to. But I just think that it's helpful to kind of evaluate each deal individually. And at some point, maybe I'll get there, but I'm not there yet. And uh, I get that. And I think it'll take me quite a bit of time too. I think what you're describing, I like the idea that the better you have set your own criteria, the easier it is to then vet these situations. And what I've noticed is there's always going to be another deal. So you can be okay letting one go if it doesn't meet your criteria. Be disciplined about your criteria and stick to it because there's going to be something else coming that's going to hopefully click with your criteria better that you can move forward on. I think that kind of gets to what you're talking about a little bit too. Yeah. And things are shifting so quickly in the capital debt markets right now too. So what's worked for operators over the last decade or even 12 years, is just not going to necessarily work in today's climate. You're going to see that there's a lot less leverage being used. Operators are debt service coverage restrained, basically meaning that property is not producing enough income to support the purchase price. So with that, in a lot of cases, they're going to have to bring more equity to satisfy the lender. With that, returns are probably going to come down a little bit. So I think there's a lot of inherent risk in products or assets that are coming to market that are using products like bridge debt. With the capital market shifting, it may be that an operator has used bridge debt safely for the last few years because cap rates have been compressing and interest rates have been coming down. Well, that shifted about around Christmas time. And since then, it's kind of a different ballgame. So have those operators and sponsors adjusted to the new climate? That's where I think it makes sense to make sure that your finger's on the pulse with this kind of stuff and you're checking your sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Sue, one of the founders of Left Field Investors. I would like to sincerely thank you for being amazing supporters of our growing community. You all are at the forefront of the left field investing movement, where we take away the emphasis of paper investments on Wall Street by thinking differently and investing passively in real assets on Main Street. My wife, who wants to go back to having normal conversations at the dinner table, is thrilled and relieved that I've finally found other like-minded people who geek out about economic vacancy, reversion cap rates, and of course my favorite, IRR partitioning. Anyway, thank you again for traveling this journey with us, and please help us spread the word about left-field investors. Kind of in that vein, and maybe we've spoken to it already as well, but I like to ask people that are on the podcast, especially with your diverse background and everything with the area, what kind of lessons learned have you had or what advice would you give 
new or experienced investors as you've gone through your process? Is there anything that jumps out that is worth sharing of maybe painfully you learned or hopefully not, but that you would tell people to avoid or just something that's been successful that you could share too? I would say something that that really comes to mind around that question is how easily IRR can be manipulated on a pro forma to tell the story of the storyteller who's the sponsor. You have to see what is not being told to you in the offering memorandum. And you know you can really squeeze, quote unquote, I've actually heard that term being used by sponsors, a spreadsheet to make it sing a song. And IRR is very heavily dependent on, it takes into account the time value of money. So number one, hold period. If you change the hold period from five years to three years, your IRR is going to go up. It's dependent on the terminal cap rate. So is your sponsor being conservative with their assumptions based around their sensitivity analysis and where cap rates may be headed? We've been compressing for a long time. Now we're probably getting towards that period where we start decompressing. And that's what we've noticed on the active side is that as we talk to brokers, there's a little bit of a softening in what sellers' expectations are. Not necessarily a big one, but that may change as the Fed continues to raise rates. Rent growth assumptions. I mean, there's another one that can really impact IRR. How aggressive are those assumptions? We saw last year in 2021, rent growth was massive. In Indianapolis, it was about 10 to 12%. In areas in Florida, it was closer to almost 30% year over year. That's not sustainable long-term. So what is the right number to plug into the spreadsheet? I can tell you that if you have 3% and you bump it to four, that makes a big difference in what your IRR pro forma calculation is. And then loan to value as well. How much leverage is that sponsor using? The more leverage, the higher the IRR, but also the higher the risk for everyone involved. So those four things, if you can change those, I remember looking at a deal and I penciled at like a 14 and a half IRR and I made very small tweaks to those four assumptions. And I think I added like 1% to the rent growth. I added five extra percent and then leverage. I took my terminal cap rate down by 50 basis points or so. And I reduced my hold period and hope for the best. And it went from like a 14 and a half up to a 23. So that's how easily these numbers can be kind of changed. And pro form is exactly that. It's a guess. It's an estimate. But you just want to make sure that those numbers are realistic. When it comes to rent growth, get on apartments.com and see what the competition is near the property that you're considering investing in. Just do your own homework. And if there are holes in the story, you'll be able to see them fairly easily if you just do a little background work. So that's what I've come to kind of notice is that there are groups out there that either purposefully change those numbers to attract LP investors. And then there's some that do it and they do it unknowingly. And they're, they're just doing it because that's what they think is right, but they're probably being a little bit too aggressive. So you almost wonder which is worse in those cases too. The one that doesn't grasp it enough to understand it or the one that's doing it on purpose kind of thing too, but neither are great by any means. No, but I think more people in the space need to be educating limited partners around the fact that returns in this environment will have to be lower than they have been in the past. So those 25% IRRs, although they've been great, on new acquisitions moving forward, something in the low teens might be a little bit more realistic. And that's protecting the downside. So if things go right or there's more upside than is expected, which you hope for, then you'll probably get a better return out of it. But going in, expecting a little bit less is going to become the norm and, and being more focused on preservation of principle than on just appreciation and being more focused on cash flow than appreciation. Those things will serve us all well if we invest that way. That's just kind of where the market is right now. But is that so bad? I mean, if you look at the alternatives in, in the investing world, where else are you going to find a return like that? Exactly. That's fair. That's fair. 
as a follow-up, if IRR is one that's tricky and can be manipulated, you kind of worry about it. Do you have other metrics that you try to use as your go-to to kind of judge whether you like the deal or not? Yeah, more secondary indicators that usually aren't talked about in the offering memorandum. So looking at things like yield on cost, if it's marketed as a value-add deal, I want to know yield on cost is essentially the pro forma net operating income. And that's, you've got to validate if that's even realistic first. But once you do, you take that number and you divide it by the total project cost. That includes the debt, that includes the purchase price of the property, the total cost. And then on top of that, the CapEx infusion that the operator intends to bring in. So that number should be higher than the market cap rate. And ideally, it should be higher than the terminal cap rate that's being predicted. That way, you've got a little bit of room there if things go down. You know, you're still protected, but you know that when you're actually adding value to the property, you truly are adding value. You know, it's not just marketed as a value add. You're making the property more valuable. You're creating equity. So I think that is very important, particularly when you buy, you know, B and C class properties that really is the play there. If it's an A class property. Maybe there's some loss to lease burn off or something like that, uh, where you can get some value add as the sponsor. And the yield on cost spread between the market cap rate will not be as, as much, but that's a safer, more conservative deal, really. So you can expect that. And then you look at like things like the default ratio, the break-even ratio, like where does this deal go south? Like what can my occupancy fall to where we start to have a problem with cash flow? So I like to look at those metrics and see kind of the safety net and see what the deal is real. What's the risk level? Yeah, no, I think that's great. Threw that curveball at you, but I thought it'd be good to hear that from you because I know you do some solid due diligence that I think people would get some education out of listening to your perspective on it too. And those elements are very important. Ultimately, you got to sift through that and decide if it's a worth a, worth your while, worth the money you're going to put into it. I think those are great metrics to talk about and have people focus on. So I appreciate that. Lastly, I'll just ask you, you kind of spoke to this early on, but what's your next steps? Where do you head from here now that you're kind of ventured into this space? You talked about your split that you may go 100%, but What's your current next steps anyway? What are you going to be focused on here recently? Well, I'm sort of being cautiously aggressive and trying to look for future opportunities. I think there will be some softening on sellers' expectations and there's less buyers in the market right now. So that means there could be decent deals out there. Price discovery is sort of up in the air right now. So looking objectively at what's going on in the market, realizing that rates are going to go up, really focused on what debt is being used to acquire the property. And I'm valuing liquidity a little bit more right now. I think cash, although you're losing 8.6% to inflation, theoretically, year over year, that's a lot better than losing 30% in the stock market in just a few months. And when liquidity starts to dry up, rates have risen, obviously. And if, if lenders pull back, you're seeing that a little bit in the bridge market right now, as there's not as many lenders in the space. If it continues on in that trajectory, liquidity is going to become a bigger issue. So having a cash cushion where you can be opportunistic with it might be a really good thing to have. So I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know when, you know, things are really going to go south. If they do, hopefully they don't, but I want to be prepared if they are looking for active investments as well. I'm still you know, interested in adding value to communities and to apartments. So I'm looking for joint venture opportunities or things that I can take down myself and always open-minded to the idea of syndicating my own deals and sponsoring my own properties. So just haven't found the right opportunity right now. That makes sense. But I can tell you we're actively looking for that too. So we'll see what happens. You sound busy enough as it is, let alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, Paul. All this was really good stuff. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us and sharing your story. A lot of good nuggets in here to share with the community. So thank you very much for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me on, Chad. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. We'll see you next time in the spotlight. Hi, left fielders. I'm Matt Pacheni. My journey from actor to full-time investor and operator of thousands of apartment units has taught me a lot about what goes on behind the scenes of a deal. I'm here to share my insider's knowledge of passive investing with you, helping you make informed decisions about how to invest your hard-earned cash, put your money to work where it can make a positive impact, and write your own story. Head on over to Pacheni.com where you can book a free strategy session with me to learn more about my approach to real estate investing. That's P-I-C-H-E-N-Y dot com. Thanks for hanging out in the infield with us today. If you're interested in becoming an infielder, you can find us at leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email directly at chad at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.